just because I do not want critical race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we talk about all the topics that you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Joel. And my name is Jose. And in this episode, we will be joined by Sam Rocha to discuss critical race theory, which has become somewhat of a controversial subject in recent months. Uh, So stay tuned for that great discussion. But first, Joel, what do we have on tap? We're finally meeting in person, and COVID has not found a way to block us. And we are having my own beer that I brewed about two months ago. And it's an imperial blonde is what they say on the box. I only do a liquid extract for all you beer people out there. I'm very lazy. But it's not imperial blonde. I think imperial, I don't know, I've never even had an imperial blonde, which is supposed to be kind of a light-colored, high-alcohol beer. Uh, out in the real world. So I guess they're made, but um, this is probably 6%. What would you say this is? It feels like a maybe 6%, maybe 5%. I feel maybe more. Oh, you think it's more? I'm feeling I'm, a little... I'm uh, good. I'm glad that you... Because it just doesn't feel like an imperial to me. It's really good. Yeah, it's good. It's okay. I learned after making uh, so many batches that were super watery, just reduce the water. So I make like four and three quarter gallon batches now out of the five gallon that you're supposed to make. So I think that... That helps mm. my, my beer making a lot. It's bomb.com. Good. Thank you so much. I would bottle this and drink it all mm. the time. It's good. Yeah, it's it's just not an imperial. I don't think it's 8% or 7% like it's supposed to be. But you know what? I haven't been drinking that much over COVID. A lot of people have been. I have not. I went to town, gin and tonics every night back mm. a year ago. Kristen and I both. And we just said, we better watch it. So, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you know. What stops? Yeah. What's what? I mean, because wouldn't you have at least a beer, a couple of beers a week? Every now and then, but I really tried to lose weight. Yeah, you And I put some back on. No, but I need to get back. Yeah, you've definitely lost weight, right? I mean, Thank how many? You. I lost 20, but now oh, I've gained, I gained back five. So, man, it's like, it's no, 15. that's great, though. I need to keep going. Mm. But uh, when I did drink, it was more like wine or white claws. Yeah. So this is amazing compared to White Claw. Yeah, White Claw. That's the big deal. My, my own sons drink that. I feel, Claw, yeah. feel less like I'm at a party. This is more adult and sophisticated. So yeah. thank you. It's all right. It's um, fun to make beer. And it turns out to be about the same price um, as you know, a couple cases. So yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's good. So take my heart to my head because I know that instead I think too much. Won't you? And now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Joel and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for a few minutes to engage with ideas and deepen our understanding about the world. So this week, Joel, what are you discussing? So I've been, of course, teaching hybrid, uh, which means half the kids in class. It's really only five or six in class usually, and then the rest at home. And this year has been so hard, harder than usual. It's always hard to motivate kids, but super, super hard to motivate my kids from home. Oh, man. So I've been kind of studying up. And what I like to do is once in a while, my Fred talks is talk a little bit about sociology. And the sociology of motivation is super tenuous. So it's just, it's just, there's not a whole lot of really good stuff. But one idea is that if we are trying to set a goal for ourselves, let's say, um, I really, really want to 
work out every day. That's always been a goal and I start and then I stop. And so sometimes we fantasize about that, right? And this study that I just read says that can actually be bad for us because by fantasizing about this, the end result, actually, we actually get the brain chemical benefits that the actual doing of that goal gives. And so that's actually demotivational. And so this one study actually found a way around that by suggesting that you should fantasize about your goal and, you know, really imagine it happening, right? And then immediately think hard about the ill effects of not doing it, right? So the ill effects for me of not doing it is dying earlier and maybe having heart problems, which is in my family. And, um, and that is, according to this study, which I don't have in front of me, I'm horrible, um, is uh, super effective for motivating people. So if you're wow. going to fantasize about some goal you have, make sure you immediately follow it by the realities of not doing it and all the ill effects of not doing it. So like if your fantasy is to like get with chicks. <laughs> that type of sexual fantasy. Right? Yeah. yeah. Just imagine yourself being <laughs> being an, an an incel loser with oh, exactly. <laughs> no chicks. Yeah, you have the picture of all these guys shooting people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Isn't that a big deal? The, the, a lot of the shooters are incels, aren't they? Oh totally. Yeah. So if you don't know what an incel is, it's an involuntary celibate. Yeah. <laughs> That's that is a tough life, and uh, yeah, I think that um, this maybe doesn't quite apply to them. But no, it would apply to me in the sense that I am trying to lose weight, and sometimes I'll fantasize like, okay, I'm I'm losing weight, okay, good, Whew. and then I've gained back five pounds. So maybe I need to start thinking about the ill effects, and that'll motivate me to continue. Yeah. Just imagine yourself as like a three hundred pound blob on a couch, and, and right. then hopefully uh, it, you get going. Yeah. I don't oh. know if I. Yeah, social science is so, so, uh, I don't know, it's nebulous and it's it's not really, it's not founded in, in all this, this horrible replication crisis where they, they've they disproved all this amazing social science that we all totally believe in. So, I don't know, take take it for a gigantic grain of salt. But it's good advice though. Yeah. It's a soft science. Yeah. So, what do we have this week, Jose? I have been missing um, your Fred talks, especially oh. more than anything over these many months of not doing this podcast. I, you know, I know you've done them, but I, I feel like with COVID, we haven't been able to get together here in the bar. It's just been too crazy with COVID, and, and then work has been insane. But Ooh. this is amazing to be back in person with you. It is so fun. I love it. Uh, so this week, I want to talk about the word Catholic and its origin. So in the past, I've said. Well, the word Catholic means universal or according to the whole. But I want to talk about when the word was first used. So initially, the followers of Christ were called followers of the way because they followed the way of Jesus, right? They were disciples of Jesus. And then in Antioch, they came to be called Christians. But in 107 AD, Ignatius of Antioch started to use the word Catholic, 107 AD. And he wrote this, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Now, keep in mind, Ignatius was a student of John, who was a gospel author. He was ordained a priest by Paul, St. Paul. You mean in person? In person. You're kidding. And Ignatius was appointed bishop of Antioch by St. Peter. So here's a person, a real person, who has these connections to really? people who were connected to Jesus. Yeah. And he used the word Catholic. To describe the church. Um, the word Catholic was also used in the Apostles' Creed, which was developed in the second century, um, and then also in the Nicene Creed in 325 AD, 
But the point of the word Catholic was to remind all the Christians that they didn't belong to just their locality, right? Mm. They weren't just people of Corinth or Ephesus. They all belonged to one universal body, one church. So the word Catholic then was used to remind everyone, no, you're one people. You're not just like little local Christians. It, and is that because Catholic, the, what is the etymology? Is it universal? Is that the universal. Oh, universal. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And what, like, so what's the benefit of telling everybody, why can't they be separate? Why can't they just have their own deal going? Well, it's a similar idea as um, to the United States. So when you think of like the Articles of Confederation, you know, the early, the first version of our country's, yeah, it you didn't know, work. It didn't work because we were all like, well, you were just from Massachusetts. You're in New York. You're in, you know, mm -hmm. West or whatever. You know, you're, you identify mainly with your state or your locality. But it wasn't until we started to see ourselves as united, right, one people, it, it really creates a sense of cohesion and belonging. Yeah. And it fits better with Paul's image of the body of Christ, right? Yeah. The hand and the foot and the eye and the ear. And if I may discuss mm -hmm. the power of words, it's amazing how human beings all unite under words, you know? If we have one word, we can like root on that word and, and all associate with that word as a tribe, yeah. And so there you go, it can be tribal, like we're all yeah. Catholic, right? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And we're all, and of course the etymology there being universal or yeah. according to the whole. Yeah. So it was, it meant to say, look, you're not just people in Ephesus, you're not just Romans, you're not just people in Corinth or yeah. Berea or whatever, we're Catholic, we're yeah. universal people. You know, I'm, I'm going to, this is all off the cuff to people, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to bring something up that always bugs me. It feels to me like Christians should always be accepting of absolutely anybody who comes to the door, right? And that doesn't always happen, mm -hmm. right? And so I like the idea that as Christians, I always felt like, you know, you don't get to say, no, you can't be part of our church because you don't have this belief. And that often happens. It doesn't happen, I don't feel like, too much with the Catholic Church. But I feel like there have been churches where, you know, if you don't have certain beliefs, they don't really want you. They're, they're, and that's a very Pharisee. What's the word? Pharisaic? What's the adjective form of Pharisee? Yeah, Pharisaical. Pharisaical. Yeah, there we go. To me. Right. And we see that. And I think the American tribalism tendency right now is infecting the Catholic Church. Where it's like, well, no, if you're a real Catholic, you won't vote for Joe Biden. Yeah. Or you won't, you know, vote for Trump. Or, and we see this sometimes when it comes to LGBT issues, like, we can't support the LGBT and be a Christian. Well, no, like, we, we, we talked about this earlier, to be Christian, to be Catholic is not a monolith, yeah. right? It's all these things together, all of our diversity come together as one. Yeah. That's why I feel like, Jose, this is going to be weird for you to hear this, but I feel like I might be some weird form of Christian where that I, I hope for, for Jesus, <laughs> I yeah. hope for it, I just... I. If I had to bet, I would definitely bet against it. Don't get me wrong. But I really hope for it. And I definitely believe in Jesus' love and forgiveness. I mean, so it's interesting. Um, I know that most churches would accept me, but a ton would not. Sure, yeah. And that makes me sad. Like, I, I think any church that says, like, before you can come into our church, you have to be perfect. Yeah, or you have to believe X. Yeah. It, no one would be in your church then. Right, right. We're right. all on a journey. And we're all at different points on the journey. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I I, uh, I totally agree, and um, that is um, something that my dad used to say all the time about Catholics. He said, "Now, I know that there's Catholics out there, but to me, Catholic just means Christian because it's just the universal, you know, umbrella." So yeah. I I totally knew your story already, kind of, sort of, from my dad. Yeah. You know, what's funny is um, 
I met a pastor at your dad's church years and years ago. And it, I, I don't know, I, I, because I was young, I guess, I didn't want to be proselytized to. Oh, yeah. So when I met the pastor, it wasn't your dad. It was the person who took over after him. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I shook his hand and said, hi, my name is Jose. I'm Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> don't even try. Don't even try. And he would have been, was he cool with that? Or? He was, and he said, yeah. so am I. Yeah. Ah, I love that. That's so typical of Lutherans, yeah. And that's what I said. I was like, yeah, you yeah. are. You're 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 Catholic light. Yeah. You got you oh, oh, oh what do you say to that? Oh we just laughed. Oh yeah, that's funny. You're actually the second, but yeah. Good times. I, I love funny. Lutherans. And I have to yeah. this is a tangent again, but my uncle is Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's funny sometimes because it's like the closer you are to the like in the break. Yeah. The more Catholic you are, <laughs> right? And the further you are from the break, yeah. the least, the less Catholic you are. Oh, totally. We we hung out a ton with Catholics. And so we always joked about, yeah, we'll accept you Lutherans because you're just one step away from us. And and they always went to, if they had to go to any other church besides Christian, uh, Catholic or Lutheran, they'd probably pick it Episcopalian because they, they I think they all like real high church. And yeah. Episcopals still have real high church sometimes. And yeah, I totally, that's so funny. And it's like, I don't know, tribalism and, and oh, we'll accept you as a joke, yes. usually, right? But sometimes people take it too far. Yeah. Anyway, that's my Fred talk. Awesome. Always, always happy to talk about this with you, Joel. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Lead to love always in our prime. Hope keeps us alive. Take these All right, in this segment of our show, Joel and I will be speaking with Sam Rocha about the controversial subject of critical race theory. Sam Rocha is an associate professor at University of British Columbia, a writer of books such as his recent work, The Syllabus as Curriculum, A Reconceptualist Approach. And his essays have appeared in places like America Magazine, First Things, and Commonweal. He's also a folk musician and the host of the forthcoming Folk Phenomenology podcast. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Thank you, Jose and Joel. It's great to be back with you. I wasn't actually, Joel wasn't here the last time I was here, so it's good to meet you finally. Yeah, great meeting you. And I'm, uh, although I don't listen to a whole bunch of folk, I love love it. So I kind of would love for you just to throw out some names if you wouldn't mind, because I'm always looking for new music. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, well, the, the new project I have coming up is called, uh, it's an album called When Air Meets Fire, and it's going to be very like singer-songwriter uh, oriented uh, collection of, of original music there. So I I'm, um, I was just a guest on Tr uh, Teresa Zoe Williams' show, Staying Up Too Late, uh, and I played some of the songs off of that one. But, uh, but yeah, I'll get you hip to, on my website, I got some albums up there and stuff like that. You can check them out. Oh, right on. Yeah, I listened to that episode with Teresa Zoe, and uh, I got to hear your music. Very cool. I loved it. Thanks, man. All right, so um, before we dive in, I just want to say I'm looking forward to your podcast, Folk Phenomenology. Um, you've got a great list of guests, and I just wanted to ask you, what prompted you to enter into this world of podcasting? Well, I mean, I've had a few people who have kind of been in my ear about the podcasting thing. I, I am, you know, as a musician... I am a recording artist as well because you have to know how to get it along in the studio. And so the technical side of the podcast uh, was always familiar to me through tracking and working in studios and stuff. But um, uh, in terms of content, 
big shout out to my buddy Edmund Mitchell on the show. He quite a long time ago had me on his show a couple times to talk about another uncontroversial thing, Jordan Peterson. And uh <laughs> and he was like like, man, you gotta get a podcast and and it wasn't until last year when I debated Trent Horn on Catholic Answers and went on a bit of a kind of podcast guest tour. I did, I don't know, 12 or 13 that uh, I got a feel for the format. And um, and I also got a lot of cool feedback from folks. And uh, my interview came out with Gloria Purvis, uh, The Gift of Blackness uh, to the Church, which helped me realize that maybe I could do interviews, maybe an interview, you know, maybe I could be an interviewer. And... Uh, and then one thing about my podcast that I'm really excited about is that all of the soundscapes are going to be sonically filled with music. So I'm also treating it like something of an art installation. So, you know, it, it gathers a lot of my interests. And, and like you said, though, the stars are my 12 women who I'm interviewing. They are the core of that whole uh, show and they just overperform. It, it, they made it really easy on me. So, so yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. I can't wait to release it. The trailer is out right now. You can hear the trailer. Um, and the first kind of prequel episode comes out on June 29th. My daughter interviews me asking me what the show is all about. Oh, cool. And she's wow. seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That'd be oh, fun. I love that. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to promote the show on this podcast, on our social medias. Well, y'all are friends of the show, so you're in the show notes. Oh, sweet. That's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So uh, let's dive in. Before we start, maybe we could define some terms because there's a lot of confusion about what critical race theory or CRT actually is. So um, maybe maybe give us the elevator pitch or the elevator pitch definition to the lay person. How would you explain CRT? Well, whenever a three words like critical and then race and then theory get put together with capital letters to create this kind of acronym, CRT. It's usually an indication that there's some formal school of thought that has a, a, a history and can be traced back to that history. For instance, you have critical theory from the Frankfurt School, and that's a bunch of Germans, uh, mostly Jewish, after the war, confronting, in some sense, the project of leftism and Marxism in the aftermath of Stalinism, Sovietism, Nazism, and like, you know, that project, uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, Benjamin, um, all those cats. And then you have like the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, which is in Birmingham in England, people like Stuart Hall, the birth of cultural studies, um, which happened a bit later. You have schools like Platonism. So it's like Plato, 430, 440 BCE. He left Athens and went to this little garden of Akademus, about 100 stadia out of Athens, and started his academy and wrote a bunch of stories that we don't know if they're fiction or not about his teacher named Socrates. And, and, and then out of that, Neoplatonism comes out, which is sort of people who are adapting and adopting Platonic ideas, sometimes without knowing it. Um, Christianity obviously has a story. You can take it to you know the New Testament and uh, Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Christ. And, and so all I'm saying is that when you see critical race theory occur, I think it's an indication that there's a story here. So we need to know what that story is. The best way I think to capture the story within a kind of timeline or chronology is that critical race theory refers to what I would call post 
civil rights abolitionism. What that means is the civil rights movement roughly begins, uh, roughly takes place within a decade of time. So when Thurgood Marshall argues uh, Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, Thurgood Marshall, civil rights attorney, he wins that case and school segregation is over. And that was kind of the first major blow to, uh, to the Jim Crow South and to the fact that even though emancipation happened in 1862 and African-Americans were slowly enfranchised through the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th Amendment, which basically made the Emancipation Proclamation official, the 14th Amendment, which made them citizens because they were freed, but they weren't citizens, and then the 15th Amendment, which gave them the vote, which happened slowly throughout Reconstruction. Even though they, the Emancipation Proclamation and those three amendments were passed, um, discrimination wasn't illegal. In fact, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 in many ways made that separate but equal clause the law of the land. And so in 1954, the civil rights movement through the NAACP scores this major victory through Thurgood Marshall and, and, and the activism behind the NAACP at, before the Supreme Court and begins to launch an ongoing abolitionist project that we call the Civil Rights Movement, which of course culminated in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed and where we finally had for the first time a piece of legislation that was openly about race and precisely openly about the that it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of race. And um, that was a major victory for the Civil Rights Movement. But of course, uh, in 1967, Thurgood Marshall, the same guy who won in front of the court in 54, he gets appointed to the Supreme Court. That's a big victory. But in 1968, Martin Luther King got assassinated. Mm. And only a little bit after that, there was the second, the Housing Act, which is sort of like the bookend to the civil rights era. But the feeling, especially within the black abolitionist community in 68, after not only was Kennedy assassinated, but also uh, not only was King assassinated, but also Kennedy, who was running on a very much an abolitionist civil rights style platform, morale was very low. And the reason it was low is because people started abolishing forms of slavery in the, seven, in the, in the 18th century in the American colonies. You know, that's how you got the, the South-North division. And the transatlantic slave trade was abolished by Congress in 1808, and shadow slavery just took hold of the country even more, especially in the South. The Civil War was fought, and in 1862, you have the Emancipation Proclamation. It took three years to just make that effective. It took all those acts and all those things. Dred Scott just before that. In other words, the story of abolitionism is the story of struggle where every gain and every moment of racial progress was always followed by a violent backlash. And by violent, I mean lynchings. I mean, you know, overt terrorism. And so abolitionists knew better than to get too excited because of the victories of 64 and with the assassinations of 68, they were like, okay, here it comes. Here comes the backlash. But there are a few differences at this moment. One, you have someone like Thurgood Marshall, who was sitting on the highest court of the land and able to advocate for abolitionism in a way that no one else had been able to advocate in terms of deep within the institution. You also have one of his attorneys who was on his team 
in the NAACP named Derek Bell, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, Bell from Pittsburgh. And Derek Bell got hired at USC and the law school and quickly was hired at Harvard and the Harvard Law School, the most influential along with Yale uh, Law School within our country. And there, Derek Bell began a study and a reconstruction of case law that resulted in the 1973 book, Race, Racism, and American Law. And in that book, Derek Bell presented something like what W.B. Du Bois presented in 1935 when Du Bois has this fantastic essay and book called Black Reconstruction, where he notes that the so-called Reconstruction era where all those things, those weren't just white folk helping out black people, but it was actually a deeply uh, black in a, a form of resistance. And, and, and what Du Bois forces us to realize is that while abolitionism obviously in, in, a, in a kind of status quo, white Protestant mainstream, has its roots in the great awakenings of the Quakers and stuff, that the enslaved people themselves were all abolitionists <laughs> and that they have to be understood in that sense. And so Du Bois changed that narrative, opened it up, he, he, he changed our understanding of Reconstruction and Black Reconstruction, and that's exactly what Derrick Bell did in Race, Racism, and American Law. He went to the minority dissent, the only one in Plessy versus Ferguson, and he read it closely like no legal scholar had ever done before. And he said, look, people knew this was wrong. We have it in print. We can't say people didn't know. And he went case by case, law by law, bit by bit, and he composed this first edition of this powerful form of what he called legal realism, where he said, even though the law wasn't using words like race or black or African, oh, Dred Scott did, by the way, it, it, but a, mo a lot of the laws related to, to enforcing racism and discrimination on the basis of race, essentially the laws that upheld white supremacy in the United States rarely used expressions like white supremacy, black, race, or what have you. But Bell said, legal realism says that if the effects of those laws are white supremacist and racist, then we have to read them through the lens of race. And this is a realist approach to the law, and it goes against other traditions of legal interpretation at that time. And that book in 1973 by Derek Bell, this lawyer who, who was working under Thurgood Marshall the decade before him, is the foundation of what we would call critical race theory. The critical theory of race is this particular theory of, of legal realism within the domain of the interpretation and understanding of American law and jurisprudence set forward by Derrick Bell within the patrimony of the NAACP and the civil rights movement. And the reason I call it post-civil rights abolitionism is because it's essentially what the abolitionist project looks after the Civil Rights Act, after the Housing Act, after the assassination of King. And it develops from there through his students. His main two most famous students in the late 70s and early 80s are Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado. He was recruited out to Oregon from Harvard. He actually had some, some disputes with the institution of Harvard, in fact. And they brought him back for a workshop. And actually, critical race theory was used as the title of that first workshop, the workshop on critical race theory, which meant to refer to essentially the theories of race and the approach to race within legal studies um, put forth by Bell 
and in dialogue with his students. And so out of there, his students, they have all differed. And they've actually critiqued Bell and critiqued each other. Uh, Delgado has critiqued Bell uh, a good bit, even though he's the editor of the kind of definitive collection, the, the Derek Bell Reader. Um, and Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality in particular has had an enormous impact, not only within legal studies, but without there. And if I can just go a little bit further in the story, these students of Derek Bell's and this conversation about law quickly spread into what I think are very natural places, one of them being educational policy, because school law and educational policies, if we go all the way back to 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, you can see that sort of civil rights really actually got started in the institution of the school through school integration. Interestingly, Bell's legal realism was critical of the later versions of school integration that forced busing. And he said, this was not the intent of the 1954 case that was argued. And, and he actually argued against integration at one point on the basis of it breaking apart local communities. So Bell was a very critical scholar and sometimes very controversial. But he wasn't a simplistic thinker by any means or at all. He was also deeply steeped in political theory. He had a lot of doubts about liberalism as it had been formed within a kind of white majoritarian consensus understanding. And naturally, this led to uh, an enormously strong uh, adoption within the field of educational research, especially by the 1990s. Um, Gloria Latsing Billings is usually given the credit for that. And it's extended out into many things, obviously African-American studies, black studies, American studies. There are also though, if I can just say one last thing, there are a lot of people in the zone of post-civil rights abolitionism who actually never did and don't do critical race theory because they weren't legal scholars or because they weren't educational scholars. The most famous I think is Cornell West. So Cornell West um, comes up through philosophy in 1988. He publishes um, the American Invasion of Philosophy, a Genealogy of Pragmatism. He does the same thing to the story of pragmatism that Du Bois did to the story of, of Reconstruction, that, that, that Bell did to the story of constitutional case law. Uh, he starts with Emerson and he says, Emerson is the father of American philosophy and he was a stone cold racist. And he works from that and then he adds to that canon people like Du Bois and others. And he doesn't throw things away, but he reads, he, he's, a, he's a critical and sensitive reader of the canon of American philosophy in a way no one quite was before. And we learned that Du Bois studied under William James and you know he kind of rounds out this picture. So West in 1993, I think, published Race Matters. Uh, Race Matters is a great little accessible, very popularly written book. Democracy Matters was a later book he published in like 2007, I think, or maybe six. The point is that like West has never been a critical race scholar because he's not a legal scholar. He's a philosopher. But he belongs, I would say, to that group of people who are post-civil rights abolitionists. Um, contemporary people like Ibram X. Kendi, who's a historian, uh, who wrote Stamp from the Beginning, this kind of intellectual history of slavery and of abolitionism, um, really of white supremacy. He doesn't identify anti-racism in his historical understanding with critical race theory. Why? Because he's, he's not a legal scholar and because that's not his, his domain, so to speak. Bell Hooks, uh, a very well-known feminist, black scholar, definitely falls within the realm of intersectionality. Does she talk about it in law? No, because she's not a legal scholar. She works in English. And so the point I'm making is that critical race theory is one part of a wide uh, uh, and sometimes complex and even sometimes at odds with each other 
uh, group of scholars in the post aftermath of 68, which is that time where the Housing Act, the death of King, kind of closed the civil rights era of black scholars who, and abolitionists, and also allies of color and, and white allies, who are working to make sure that the lessons we've seen of history, that every form of racial progress has a backlash that's violent, that all these things that, that we know now for centuries, to try to understand it, to try to call it out, to try to anticipate it. The tragic thing here is that Black Lives Matter started whenever Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin. And here we are in the aftermath of the, thank goodness, um, three times guilty verdict you know, of Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd. But I think this era that we're in right now shows you we are still in the post-civil rights era of abolitionism. And critical race theory is very much a part of that and an important part of that. And anyone who opposes it needs to realize that you are taking the side of the people who defended slavery, lynching, the Jim Crow South, and all these other things. And I mean, have fun with that. I mean, I don't know. What do you say? Like, like, go ahead, you know, I mean, see how that goes for you. I mean, you know, yep. good luck with that. Yeah. 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 You brought up education. Of course, we're both teachers. So I'm super curious and I don't know if you know this, but do you happen to know what CRT scholars think about like no child left behind and, and uh, race to the top? I, I'm, and I think Jose is, is very much against it. And, and what's crazy is that they constantly call schools like ours, Jose and, and, and I teach at a low-income school, and we're very proud of it. And we, our kids know two languages. We never bring that up, right? And we never celebrate that. Yeah. Well, we never call them failures. All we yeah. do is we put them in this red, this red zone, you know, that, that lets everyone know basically that our school is a failure without basically saying that straight up. But I know that it's touchy. Uh, some people of color and... and um, and uh, civil rights activists are definitely for it, and some people are against it. It's kind of a, it's been a wedge issue. Yeah, this is such a good question because it really gets to the heart of a huge part of the abolitionist um, conversation, especially after Reconstruction. So you have to realize, like, like Black Reconstruction and the Reconstruction period basically ends at the after the Fifteenth Amendment is passed, and in particular after Plessy versus Ferguson, there that backlash kind of. You know, even the Thirteenth Amendment. If I can just make a quick little point, they abolish they abolish forced servitude with one exception: imprisonment. And so we can see how the shadow s slavery institution was subtly switched to the carceral institution. And so the prison, the the school to prison pipeline begins with that establishment of the only live option and exception for the continuation of the project of slavery as ratified within the Constitution of the United States is within the place of the prison. And there's been some really sophisticated and very deep dives into the relationships between the common school as a penal institution and the rise of the prison, especially after the abolition of slavery. And, you know, black um, abolitionist conversations have always revolved around education. When you read Du Bois' 1903, The Souls of Black Folk, from higher education, the wings of Atlanta, to his disputes with Booker T. Washington, um, it's always been central. And Du Bois himself is criticized because he wrote this one essay called The Talented Tenth. And he advocated for a kind of, let's focus on the top of our people to advance our, our, ourselves into society, this kind of 
you know, empowerment issue. I, I, I laugh about it because I was a Gates scholar. And I have to say, I think the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation took a kind of talented 10th approach to the criteria uh, uh, of, of the, the way that scholarship was doled out, especially when I got it, which was 2001. I was, you know, the second year of that scholarship. And so it's funny because when I read Du Bois, even though no one likes this essay of his, I read it with a certain amount of affection, you could say, you know. But you have this narrative of sort of a kind of elitist, approach to um to educational opportunity and empowerment but you also have those who are who are tracking for the liberal arts du bois was very much a liberal arts guy du, uh, booker t washington was like they don't need liberal arts they need jobs and hammers and you know labor and vocational education so you have those those conflicts you have carter g woodson the miseducation of the negro probably the most important text on education i believe oddly enough it's a critique of the negro college so here, uh, Woodson, a, a black historian, he's the guy who got Negro History Week and later Black History Month on the map. He's actually criticizing the, the black colleges for teaching black people to be white and to hate themselves for being black. Wow. And he throws in the black church towards the end of the book. I mean, it is a searing indictment. And it's not just pointing outward at white society. It's saying... They don't even need to come here to, 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 take, a, to take our sense of self-respect away from us. We'll do it for them. Wow. And so this very powerful critique. The reason I'm saying all these things is that all of those abolitionist discourses on education um, are continue to be live wires. There was a lot of black nationalists, pan-Africanists who were very opposed to school integration because for them, segregation not white mainstream Jim Crow segregation, but separatism, black separatism. That to them was an important uh, uh, thing to have a, a very kind of black Afrocentric, as they would say, you know, sensibility. This is the, the sensibility of the Black Panthers, for instance. And the Black Panthers were deeply invested in education. People don't don't know this, but you know, out in the Bay Area, um, you know. A lot of the concerns for the Black Panthers were empowerment through education, access to, you know, Angela Davis studied with Herbert Marcuse, did her PhD on Immanuel Kant. I mean, she's a smart abolitionist, uh, Black Panther. And so whenever you get to like the 1990s, I was in Texas and I took the TOS test, the Texas Assessment of Academic Skills, which was the Laura Bush preamble to what would become No Child Left Behind in 2003. And, um, you know, that was an interesting experiment, especially in Texas, because I'm sure in California, you know, that Texas, we have a similar demographic, especially in terms of languages and stuff like that. And I, I'm, I'm Mexican-American, too. And there was a sense within especially, I think, the Mexican-American community that there was a split idea. Some took this as a talented 10th idea, like, look, our very best who wouldn't be able otherwise to perform and rise they'll get to go in there and they'll get to, to take those tests just like the white kids do and they'll get to show that we're smart too and we're willing to take that on just like that and so that was very much the mo thing for me like sam you are as smart as anybody in the world you know knock them out but then of course there was also the concerns about like well look maybe we'll get a few you know high achievers out of this but this is 
going to cumulatively deeply disadvantage our communities. It's going to empty resources because funding is always attached to these decisions, you know. Um, and the competitive nature of all of this is going to ultimately undermine the educational project. I think in retrospect, I have a lot of sympathy for the idea of empowerment now by any means necessary. But I think the long game, the critics of that were right. And so what we saw in 2003 with No Child Left Behind and frankly accelerated and raced to the top through Obama. One thing people don't know is that Bush and Obama were basically just like best friends when it came to educational policy. In fact, the, the most neglected and least radical politics you can find where the Democrats and the Republicans largely by and large agree is education. Absolutely. They pretend that school choice is somehow this like wedge issue, but they don't usually even particularly understand it. And both the Democrats and the Republicans all send their kids to Andover and Exeter and they don't need to worry too much about the state of public or private or like they're not sending their kid to some high risk charter school started by a philanthropist, right? No, they're going to like the very best schools on the East Coast and then to Bates or to Yale or to Harvard or whatever, you know. Um, so the elites of our country don't need to worry about education because they've had an educational system that works for them before there was a country here and they're still going to them. And that's why those those schools among them Andover and Exeter, the Quakers. I mean, that's where Obama sent his kids. You know, got to love the Quakers for their abolitionism. Um, Quaker Friends schools, Sidwell, right? You know, but um, it's sometimes difficult to square exactly where they sit within the panorama of equity and access and education. So, you know, these are central questions, I think, for abolitionists today. I am something of a holdout and that I'm not willing, I can't, just because of the way I came up and all this, you know. Like, I can't entirely turn my back on the empowerment, talented 10th, slightly elitist model. And I feel like there's a, a place that it can work, but I'm more and more convicted by the moral argument of a democratic, equitable, accessible, public, social, heavily well-funded, unionized education establishment. But but then at the same time, I teach in teacher education up here in Canada. And I'm a, a huge critic of the quality of teacher education preparation and the kinds of, of instruction that happens in the teachers' colleges and and whatnot. And I don't think that if we have that lofty idea in mind, that democratic idea of education, then the kind of teacher preparation that we're doing, which is very much built around methods, 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 and more methods, practice, 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 you know, there's not enough, there's not going to be enough gas in that tank to last a lifetime or a career because there's no ideas, there's no mystery, there's nothing difficult, you know, there's the, the, the black, black abolitionist tradition, tradition, I would exchange it. it completely like we will only read black educational controversies from Frederick Douglass to to Ta-Nehisi Coates and Bell Hooks that'll be the the total of you could get a better teacher education training with that content and be more prepared to teach mathematics or science or arts or or whatever than you could with these highly concentrated academically you know over 
emphasize. And so I'm a huge critic internally of teacher education programs and teacher education as a flaw. And I'm a partisan though too. I'm a philosopher of education. <laughs> so whenever you peel back the funding, you'll be like, oh, well, of course he's, he's buttering his own bread. But I think I have principles and arguments for that. But I, that's a kind of long-winded answer to your question, but it's a good question. And it's a super important question to keep in mind. Because if you look at the Republican and conservative criticisms of CRT, they're often saying they're coming for our kids in the schools. It's the public schools and their woke ideology. The school has always had this particular kind of lightning rod identity for for ginning up all kinds of great replacement theories and all kinds of nonsense like that. And, uh, and you can often see those things also working inside of this. And that's where things I think get really nasty. But yeah, that's one way maybe to think about that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was as a history, U.S. history teacher. All right. I, I see. Am I doing okay on my U.S. history? Oh, my, oh you're, man. You're... I'd like to sit down with you for several hours. All right. All right. Well, you correct me if I get some stuff wrong. So. <laughs> you're, you're blowing me out of the water here. You're making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I see politicians posturing. I see angry parents at school board meetings and those tears make it on the news. What are these people not getting about critical race theory mm. or at least the idea of teachers incorporating race into their instruction of U.S. history? What are they missing? Yeah, when it comes down to it, honestly, like for me, it's really a question of motivations and like good faith and bad faith. So my inclination is to say, you don't need to study critical race theory at all. You don't need to know who Derek Bell is at all. You don't need to know who Kimberly Crenshaw is at all to know some of the basics about abolitionism and the history of abolitionism in this country. Cornel West doesn't need to be a critical race theorist because he's a totally legit philosopher who works within his own field and whatnot. I don't need to be a critical race theorist because I'm a philosopher of education and I work. Now, the reason why I know what I do know about CRT is because I work in education. And so I have to sometimes adjudicate um, proposals and research where they're using CRT. And I'm the guy who, if I'm on your examination committee and you throw out CRT as like a mode of authority, I want to see all your receipts. And if you're just, you know, saying I'm just against racism, it's like, well, that's nice, me too, but that doesn't fly as an analytic, you know. I mean, the moralistic sentiment is something we can share, but it doesn't do any good about making an argument or what have you, you know. So I can be quite a hard ass on this side of of my work as an academic when I hear people throwing around even words like intersectionality. Some people see intersectionality, the metaphor is just like a four-way stop. That's what it is. But some people have gotten to the thing where like, well, if you could have a five-way stop, that'd be a better, that'd be more intersections or 17-way stop. That'd be even better. And uh, Kimberly Crenshaw has been like, she's been very clear about this. Intersectionality is not an additive function. It's not about adding identity markers at the intersection. It's about how do we transform society? We're not going to do it on a class essentialist or a race essentialist or a gender essentialist or, or a regional essentialist. We're going to do it at the intersections. That's what intersectionality says. It's not about an additive. The more intersections you get, the, the, the better politics you have. No, that's not at all what it means. And I see people messing that up all the time around here who kind of think intersectionality is just a big word for identity politics. I'm like, no, that's not it. What I'm saying is that people get a lot wrong. <laughs> Even people who are trying to throw around CRT like they know it and like they want to use it, 
And I'm right there slapping them on the wrist every bit as hard, I think, as I am externally to people who, to your question, are often against it. My big problem is, so critical race theory, you can date it to 1973, the publication of Race, Racism, and American Law. You could date it to the workshop, which I think was around like 1980. You could date it to 68, to the end, as I'm saying. Well, if you count, let's go 80 because it's the hardest one. 90. Uh, we've got like 40 years of time since this thing started. And now all of a sudden you're saying it's like the worst thing ever. Wouldn't the worst thing ever be the worst thing ever over here in 1980 or 1985 or 1990 or 1995 or 2000 or at least 2010? Or like, why are we only hearing about CRT now? And why does everything that people say about it have nothing to do with legal realism, nothing to do with Derek Bell, nothing to do with Kimberly Crenshaw, nothing to do with Delgado? They could walk up on these people on the street and get asked for change and not even know who they are, but sound a lot like the same exact things Rush Limbaugh was saying in 1997 about political correctness. The same exact things that William F. Buckley Jr. wrote about and God and Man at Yale in 1953. Why, why is this so-called CRT and woke ideology sound like the snowflakes and the social justice warriors and, all, and, and Marxism and all that stuff? What they're doing is, and I think they need to be called out on this if they're operating in bad faith, is you're just recycling words to say something like full enfranchisement and liberation, the abolitionist project, makes me uncomfortable. Because bringing in people who have been left out of our society makes me feel that I might get pushed out by them. I don't believe in an idea of the good life that can include everyone. And so I'm terrified because if I include everyone, it is going to de facto exclude me or my progeny. That's what they're saying. This is mainly white folks or in some cases, People of color who are not black most of the time, who can either pass culturally, the whole model minority myth, or who are fighting to, we won't ever become white like the Irish, like Jews, like Germans, like Italians, but we can get way closer. <laughs> you know, and you know who's really bad about this? Sorry, Jose, but I think you know this is true. <laughs> See. Mexicans, man. Oh, yeah. We, we love to, to strategize and and shield white folks whenever we feel we can get a couple you know good deals off of the thing and then turn on them and call them gringos you know when they're not looking and you know like i know my community and we play this game really well i actually think richard delgado who is also mexican-american plays this game a bit on the inside of critical race theory he has this critique called the critique of the black white binary and I used to be into it, I think mainly because of the same identity politics I critiqued earlier. It appealed to me. The more I think about it, I think he made a mistake. I think he's wrong about that. So these folks who are critical of CRT, what they're missing is CRT. They're not mad at, 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 at Derek Bell. They're not mad at, at Delgado. They're not mad at Crenshaw. They're not mad at Patricia Hill Collings. They're not mad at, at scholars. They're mad at the thing that people have been mad about whenever, because, you know, the thing was that like, okay, so the Emancipation Proclamation happened. We're not allowed to own people anymore. Be happy now? Well, no, because it's not official yet. There's, we need an amendment to the Constitution. Oh, really? Don't you? 
three years later. Okay, so now it's official. Happy now? Well, not really because we're not really citizens. And not being citizens kind of means we're stateless, liberated people. Oh, gosh. So now you want to be citizens. What are you going to want next? The vote? No, we don't want the vote now. We just want to be citizens. Okay, so then the 14th Amendment. Okay, so now you're citizens. You shut up now. Go get your mule and your acre, whatever. Go take go 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 to some of those freedmen schools or trades. Well, no, we you know we'd like to vote. You know, actually, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. important to us. The men, at least, women can't vote at all. <laughs> oh, really? Don't you? Well, we we knew this, this gonna was going to happen. Yeah. Do you, you guys know I could go on for two hours giving you this step by step thing? Yeah. Here we are in 2021. Well, Chauvin, you know, mob violence and, and peer pressure, cancel culture got that verdict. So what are you going to do now? Are you going to go raid Target again and, you know, blow up some buildings? You know, you you know, are you happy now? It's like, no, the, the, the project of liberation, the project of abolition is not the kind of project that ends because of incremental change. It's a total theological, I would claim, spiritual. It was for King. It was for most black leaders. It, it is for Cornell West. It, it has an, a dimension that is related to yearning for a justice that is not just fairness, but is divine justice. And, and ultimately about a form of life that is not just about being tolerated and being minimally by degrees freed, but ultimately about creating a society where it's less difficult to love and where it's where friendship and conviviality are, are, are possible. And so the people who are crit crit critiquing CRT, they're missing all of that. And the sad thing about it is that they're probably the most oppressed people in this country. Wow. Yeah. They're probably the poorest, most impoverished. Mm -hmm. I mean, their moral foundations are completely paper thin. The people who got on the buses to do those freedom rides during the civil rights movement, the people who took to the streets during, you know, just a year ago in Washington, D.C. and got tear gas so that Trump could walk across the street and hold a Bible up in the air. These people are the powerful in our country. These are the people with a, with a moral compass and foundation. And these are the rich. These are, these are truly the elites of our country. And those who oppose them and those who are going to these meetings and crying, in some sense, I can see a reason for their tears. I would cry too if I was that, <laughs> if my conscience was that violated, if I had no ability to recognize not only the dignity of others, but even my own. Because at the, at the heart of all this, I believe that the one who is oppressed the most always is the oppressor. Because the oppressed at least have the ability to know deep inside themselves, that seed of conscience that is abolitionism, this is wrong. No one should do this to me. And they can keep doing it to you, but you don't have to like it. And you don't have to believe that it's right. Whereas the person who does it to you, they in some sense fall into a far deeper pit of, of, of moral depravity. And, you know, so in some sense, I feel really sorry for the people who are mad about CRT. It must be horrible to be so blind. It must be terrible to suffer from that kind of, 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 of moral and spiritual degradation that you would cry those tears sincerely from your heart over something like abolition. I mean, you know, it's too bad.
Yeah, I think that one of the um, things they cry about is is um, labeling their kids in schools as um, you know, or not wanting schools to teach uh, white privilege. And you hear that that label mm. all the time. Yeah. And I feel like this is a problem we educators can easily dispel with just a few facts. You don't. I don't. Never had to walk around a store without worrying about being followed. You know, simple facts are redlining. We could easily teach that in school yeah. and just dispel that right away. And um, and so I think we um, we could do a better job. But I don't think our textbooks get into the nitty gritty like that, do no. they? And it should. No. Well, I mean. History itself is a political project. The construction of history and the way we tell and who we tell, story, counter story, memory, counter memory. You know, for me at least, the the teaching of history, insofar as it's political, can be saved by a concern for truth that is not self-preserving or defensive. I mean, as a Roman Catholic, it breaks my heart. To see that the 215 indigenous, you know, children oh. who were buried in unmarked, Ooh. unreported graves in Kamloops, which is just northeast of me, these were the Oblates of Mary. This was a diocese of the Roman Catholic Church in Canada. The residential schools were 60% run on behalf of the government by the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think that my concern for truth can ever be outmatched by my concern for comfort or by self-preservation or those things because either we're either we care about the truth or we're liars yeah and you know there are complexities you know for instance in order for francis to come to canada to apologize to the indigenous he has to get an invitation from the canadian conference of bishops because it kind of breaks form for him to impose himself. He'll never come here if they don't ask him. But the Canadian bishops will say, we can't apologize, only the Pope can. And so they're taking advantage of knowing the rules really well. And I think what they're doing ultimately is actually keeping him at bay because they don't want him to come and do that. Um, I'm lucky to have an archbishop here who's given a full-blown unsophisticated apology and called it what it is, colonialism. And, you know, he's really I'm really blessed to be here with with Archbishop Miller, but he's the exception, not the rule in Canada. This is what history does to us, though. You know, I think our personal histories are a great place to start, and I wish sometimes that we could start with that. No one has a, a great personal history. There's no such thing as, as people with personal histories that are perfectly clean, and it's a self-deception of the highest magnitude to walk around thinking that that's the case. And ancestry is oftentimes a place where we find very difficult things to deal with. I'm being halfway joking, but I'm probably being a little bit serious. <laughs> I have I have like a, a couple ran, I have like a random Mormon in my family. And I'll be honest, no offense to the LDS, just kind of drives me crazy. Like of all the things to have in my family, like why? Why that? Now, maybe it makes me like racist against LDS or Mormons or I don't know. It definitely shows though my kind of Catholic hangups and my identity because I have crypto Jews, crypto judios. That doesn't bother me. I'm cool with that, you know. <laughs> so like for me, like that's difficult stuff to sort through. At a level of our national history and our national identities, I think that 
the history teacher almost needs to be prepared to perform a kind of therapeutic, psychoanalytic, emotional pedagogy where they teach people how to learn what is true, even though it's not convenient and even though it's not comfortable, and to love the truth more than they love their own self-preservation. And, you know, that goes against, in many ways, everything about this neoliberal capitalist culture we live in, where apologies are liabilities, where profit is sought at all costs, where reward is taken, whether it's deserved or not, where honor is kind of seen as an almost romantic, you know, utopian idea. And so it's very difficult to teach history because emotionally it goes against, I think, a lot of our culture's values, which shows what a thin and and in many ways impoverished culture we have in American society, where, you know, like Germany, for instance, it's got some history to work through since the Shoah. And when I talk to Germans, they often feel conflicted even about whether it's permissible to feel pride in Germany because Nazism soiled that blood and soil love so thoroughly that to this day, Germans walk gingerly around that. But to their credit, I think, culturally speaking, they've faced far more of that story than I think Americans have relative to their own story. And so a lot of, I think a lot of the resistance to Black Lives Matter and to critical race theory and stuff is simply that people don't want to hear the African-American experience, which has been on these shores since 1619, you know, to the present. And, you know, I don't really know what to do about that, except to be able to show that I can be vulnerable with my story, that I can show you that, like, I know that my community has a lot of atoning to do even though we have experienced um, very real and overt forms of xenophobia and racism, but it wasn't anti-black white supremacy. It was a different kind. And it took me a long time to get there though. You know, even this, this actually has been something hard for me. I used to, I was playing in like a neo soul, new jazz band where I was often the only non-black person in a club or at a family reunion or whatever. And if you put me in a room with all black people, I present as white. I do not present as Latino or ambiguously ethnic or anything or brown. No, I'm the white dude. And getting called white by black folks and correcting them, but at the same time being like, they're not wrong. You know, that took me some getting used to. And coming to Canada, brown is a designation for South Asians. So if you're from Pakistan, if you're from India, if you're from, if you're Punjabi, you're brown. It's not the brown thing of, you know, rasa down in the States. It's not <laughs> my brown. And I've had to up here submit to the fact that, oh, I'm not brown up here. I'm, I'm something else. The reason why this matters is because part of this history that isn't told is the history of the construction of the very idea of race that placed whiteness and invented whiteness in order to be placed at its center. And we have this, the ethno-sciences, the race sciences, phrenology has said there's five races in the world. You have the white man, the black man, the yellow man, the red man, the, the, the 
whatever brown man yeah. and they would create a, a, a taxonomy of, of like and, and get, we all know who was at the top of the taxonomy right you know the white man you know and and or they would say like well they're all equal but they have different gifts you know so all the good gifts belong to the white man mm-hmm. <laughs> um in other cases they would say it was a spectrum of humanity that that whiteness was the most human and and the person became degraded into animality all the way down that and so down on the loy. And when you look at the caste systems in Latin America and between the peninsulares, the criollos, the mestizos, the um, indígenas, the, the, the negros, you can see the spectrum of humanity played out in the Spanish colonial system. Yeah. That spectrum was invented not to describe people. It was not a science. It was a pseudoscience. It was invented to guarantee political power to a very particular class of person based on their race, based on not even their true race, their true ethnos, but on an invention of race. So in the Civil War period, there were very few slave owners, actually, like per capita. Most people in the South were enslaved or or poor white sharecroppers, and there was a small bit of aristocrats who were the colonial slave owners. How exactly do you think that minority of white slave owners convinced the majority of poor white sharecroppers to take up arms and fight for them to be able to keep their enslaved people? That's pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. There was no self-interest they could give them. They were not prepared to give them money or rewards of any kind. The only thing they could give them was whiteness. They could say, the thing, the reason we're going to go to war is because we're going to preserve our way of life and our race. It was a pure fiction that was invented for that specific purpose and that specific movement, but it worked spectacularly because even after they lost, those same poor, non-slave owning, just dumb as dirt, white sharecroppers continued to support the institution of white supremacy in the Jim Crow South, just as their forefathers died like idiots, you know, at Gettysburg and at the, you know, and that shows you how effective this, this idea of race, which is this biological myth, the biological theory of race. And that is the the predominant theory of race of the 19th century. That is the, the theory of race that created white supremacy and abolitionism within history is also a story of the opposition of that theory, that uncritical biological pseudoscientific theory of race, which is itself racism and white supremacy through a sociological theory of race that says, guess what? Sam is white when people in a society say, you kind of don't look black, so I guess you're white. Or Sam is white when you go to Canada where people are like, I'm from South Asia, Brown is spoken for. Get your own word. <laughs> I am white. I'm white. And and I'm also Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. And when I go to Mexico, I'm probably not as Mexican enough. And when I'm on the US, I'm, I'm not American enough. And that's just the social construction of my race. And that is a truer, more scientific, more realistic account of of our racial composition than the biological theory. And so one of the things that history sometimes hides are is the history of ideas 
And one thing I don't like about history and secondary schools is that we often teach his history of events or history of personalities, but we rarely teach a history of ideas, an intellectual history. And so if you're not aware of the way that the idea of whiteness exists and endures throughout many events and many personalities in different salient ways, then all of a sudden in 2020, when you hear a thing like white privilege, like you talked about, you'll be like, I grew up poor. And you're like, yeah, exactly. You're like the dumb sharecroppers in the South in the 19th century who had nothing to their name, far less than you have. And they all went and sent their sons to die for this privilege to own slaves that they would never in their lifetime see ever, all for their race. I mean, white privilege. Yes, it's a privilege for a kind of stupidity that gets oftentimes um, really violent whenever you see class-based coalitions. So some of the scariest things were the co-ops of sharecroppers, white and black sharecroppers. You can see it in Denzel Washington's The Great Debaters um, movie. Whenever you start to see like the poor people's coalition, that's why King was killed. King wasn't as dangerous representing himself as a black man. Whenever he went anti-war and whenever he started to go at a poor people's coalition, then he became dangerous. And there was only one way to deal with him then. And so, yeah, exactly. You know, they, they knocked him off of Memphis. So, you know, for me, teaching history is about getting over our emotions and, and, and believing in the truth, capital T, truth, but also about teaching the truth, not only through events and through people, but also the truth of ideas and the way those ideas often endure and outlast events and times. And so, you know, I think a, a history of white supremacy is an important history to learn and teach whether you're some, because one of the things you learn is that no one who's white has an ethnos. In other words, white isn't, you can be Irish, you can be Polish, you can be German, you can be Scottish, you can be all five of those things I said. But there's no such thing as being like, I come from white. My parents grew up in white over by white. You know, there's no place called white. There's no white nation. There's no white geography. And so I think a lot of the history, a lot of the things that history can show us with respect to whiteness is that it's not just about places and events and battles and chronologies. It's also about the way ideas establish themselves as almost more real and more concrete than the popcorn in my hand, the white popcorn in my hand, <laughs> which is, which is, I think actually really radical and crazy. So for me as a philosopher, I actually turn to history a ton because that's largely for me the place where ideas happen. So I'm less interested in history as a historian, and I'm far more interested in history as the place where ideas are made and unmade and remade and where we as a result are made, unmade and remade. Uh, as human beings yeah so uh, okay so as we wrap up because i'm i'm yeah, looking at the clock here i know but you know i talk forever so you already knew this was coming dude it's like well the last time you were on it was a two-parter um, <laughs> which i love i could sit here and listen to you for hours <laughs> um i'm a student at your feet nah so taking all that you said into account critical race theory but then also the different aspects of race um in education philosophy etc how can we apply that today to injustice? 
I know there's Black Lives Matter movements and, and quote unquote woke <laughs> ideology, but how can we apply all this today? So I'm going to say that the most important application today is actually education. And what I mean by that is just last night, I got yelled at on Twitter. This happens a lot, so don't get too worked up. I get, I'm probably being yelled at right now, so it's not a big deal. But I got yelled at because I pointed out that the word woke was a term that's used within the black community for like, I grew up Afrocentric, or I grew up socially conscious, or I grew up conscious, I grew up woke, meaning I grew up in a family that took an abolitionist approach to our formation, our enculturation, our art. Um, and sometimes that meant I blew up, grew up within the black church and other cases, it means I actually didn't. And I pointed out that like, so the word woke is actually a term that got lifted right out of the black vocabulary. And if you want to find its predecessor to that, you have to go to the second great awakening and the 18th century where Quakers in those three awakenings, the first, the second, and the third, abolitionism came out of their spiritual movements of, of, of Protestant revivals in the United States. I just said this. I said, so if you're anti-woke ideology, you're kind of against a term within the black community and or also against the long history of white alliance abolitionism in this country, going back to the Great Awakenings and the revivals. And some guy was like, how many people do you think know this? How can you say that? Like he was saying, like, if people don't know this, you can't hold them responsible. And in a way he's right. So maybe you don't know that. And you just heard that anti-woke means things I don't like, or, or woke means things I don't like. And so then you say, well, I'm anti-woke because most people are generally against things they don't like. Okay. But the thing to do here is called Google. And then you put in W-O-K-E and you press enter. And then the first thing you see is this Wikipedia that tells you that woke comes out of the black community and the history of abolitionism or history.com or what this thing called a Webster's Dictionary where you go to the letter W. I'm being sarcastic, but this is how basic this is. If people would use Webster's or Google or get a library card and just learn what the words that are coming out of their mouth mean beyond what so-and-so on the internet told them, I actually think that would do an enormous amount to cut through the disinformation and lies and deception that gets played. Because the people who are throwing these words around, they're trading on misinformation and they're, and they're counting on people not checking. They're counting on people not Googling. They're counting on people not turning to, to some source with some amount of authority. And when they do, they undermine the sources of authority. But that game is easy to break. And it's broken by teachers like you, hopefully by teachers like me. And it's broken by, by literacy, by reading, by informing. So for me, the call to action is a call to study. And I believe that in this country, one of the least appreciated aspects of activists like Martin Luther King was his commitment to study. He was an activist. He was a Black Baptist preacher. He was also wrote a PhD thesis and taught courses in social and political and moral philosophy. Angela Davis, among the biggest champions of, you know, prison abolition we have today, she did all her homework. 
you know, WB Du Bois. I think there's a lot of people, and here I'm going to be kind of nasty, including the woke who are on the street, including the teachers, sorry, <laughs> who whenever you go in to do a workshop and you don't have, you know, five learning outcomes for them, they're not going to listen to you because they can't be bothered with uh, intellectual history or something. There's a lot of people who even the ones with the right moral or political intuitions who haven't rendered them out through study. And I think everybody needs to do that. The reason why is because the history of abolition is about a history of liberation that has come through study, through letters. The thing that the enslaved people were denied during enslavement was their ability to read, their ability to be literate. And it was through literacy and the empowerment of letters that their spirit and their protest was was given a voice there was a slave bible in the caribbean given to slaves that cut out all the stories of the old testament prophets and moses and paul gentile or jew woman or slave uh, uh you know woman or man because they didn't want them getting any ideas the history of abolition is about this powerful salvific idea called liberation and it's come through the word it's come through the letters and i think that people who sleep on study and who sleep on homework and who are lazy and even if their laziness is because well i already agree with blm and i sent them 200 dollars, i don't care if you don't study then in my mind you're every bit as lazy with a slightly less inconvenient personal ideology as the next racist down the street who's just spouting great replacement white supremacy apologias. Because neither one of you are following through on that gospel of liberation that has been given to us by the black intellectual tradition and by the black artistic tradition, the Harlem Renaissance, the novels of Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, so on and so forth. So to me, the call to action and the call of what to do is get your face in a book. And 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 read Carter G. Woodson and read W. B. Du Bois and read Ida B. Wells and read, you know, uh, Sojourner Truth and read, you know, Langston Hughes and read Frederick Douglass and 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 if you're not doing that, if you're not reading Letter from a Birmingham Jail, if you don't have that on the top of your heart and you can't go to that and draw on that, then you're not an abolitionist. And I think that the ultimate thing is this call for all of us to be abolitionists. Abolition is, is, is a communal, spiritual, uh, social project that we all need to join. But you don't join it by just going down to the protest um, or by saying, I agree, white privilege exists. You join it by getting your ass in the library. Yeah. That, uh, and also <laughs> opposing yeah. the restriction of, of voting. Like, yeah, just get involved and, and learn about the issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is a good, that's always a good note. Obviously, they're not mutually exclusive, but no, for me, no, they are I, one and the same, in fact. Yeah. Totally. The character who stands out to me here is Stacey Abrams. Oh. You can't yeah. find a more bookish person on this, on in this country right now who's politically active than Stacey Abrams. And so for me, it's like, of course she writes novels on the side while she's reading a bunch, while she's out there literally changing the political landscape of the American electorate. So to me, she is like um, the present tense icon 
of what study can do. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean you never, when you walk out of the library, you just go in your room and you shut the door. It usually means that after that, you go to a study group where you're just talking, you know, the most radical folks I meet here on campus, the anti-fascists, I mean, and I'm talking about actual Antifa. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. Like that's, that's how they identify. They're all a bunch of nerd grad students. And they came to anti-fascism largely through reading the archive of the history of anti-fascism. Some come into it through anarchism and syndicalism. Some come at through uh, concerns over the show on post-war and, 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 and stuff like that. And some come through it through, through racial politics and some come through it through other things. But you know what's so funny to me is that the people who are literally cool with direct, direct action and mutual aid, including punching a fascist if it comes to that, like the great Italian saint, you know, Frassati punched a fascist, a Mussolini fascist. The most radical folks are also the folks who are like heaviest on the books. And, uh, and so I'd always like, I always want to measure that. I, I think there's a false conservative image that they've projected that they're the ones who study all the time. Mm. And what really bothers me about that is they don't. They write the same book over and over and over and over and over. And they rarely read the books they say they're reading. And so I want to, at least in my own vocation, I want to confront them on their own terms. Be like, you want to talk Plato? Okay, sit down. Let's talk Plato. Which book of the Republic are we going to break down? You know. And I find that time and time again, and I know, Jose, you've seen this online, they come up empty or they run away. Or block you. Know? you. <laughs> or they block, well, they block me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm calling all of them out in this same way. And I think that there's a politics to that. You know, but that also includes getting out there, getting out the vote, getting on the phone lines, you know, doing all that work. And also knowing that the people you're going to meet whenever you really get your feet on the ground are largely going to be um, a bunch of nerds. And I think that that's the great that's the great story of the abolitionist. I think the abolitionist is always a nerd. Yeah. 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 Frederick Douglass. Perfect example, man. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. And what I love about, just if I can plug real quick, my podcast <laughs> is, um, you know, I purposefully only interviewed women as the core of my season. There's some other debates and some other things where I talk to some fellows. But what I loved is that every single one of them, and no offense to them, and I don't know if they'll be mad at me for saying this, but we just nerded out, you know. I talked to, to Ogechi about powerlifting and about like, how to get a proper squat and she schooled me on my squat technique yeah. like that's that's the level of nerding you know it's about the details it's about getting into like you know the this is one of the things i've learned to start to like about biden i was a bernie guy so it's hard for me but biden for me i've started to appreciate the level of detail that he wants to get into on the daily on policy and in a way his conservatism you know his slowness sometimes because he wants to just pile on the information. And I know there's definitely people probably I'm closer to like AOC who are up to here with that, but I have a lot of respect for that. And so, yeah, we got it. We got to work and we got to win 2022. You guys, come on. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. You're out in California. You, you got it pretty good out there. Yeah. But, uh, 
I mean, if the voting, uh, the state voting laws keep on going the way they are, it's going to be a whole different story. So that, to me, we need to fight hard on, on that front. Um, in it's a practical the new Jim Crow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, yeah. But we'll rise up again, you know, and that's for me the thing, too, is that th uh, for me, these politics and this theology, it's, it's affirmative and it's positive. Abolitionism is an affirmation of the fact that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Like that's, for me, abolitionism is a profoundly hopeful, positive, love-based uh, message and, and, and political approach to, to, to life and to ethics. And, um, and that's why for me, some call me naive for this. I say like, you know, if Texas wants to go hard on, on, on the voting booth, you know, then, then we'll just go even harder on the the counties that we know Hidalgo County, we know Bexar County, we know Williamson County, we know the counties we need and we'll go get the votes. And that's what we're gonna do. You know, and that's a that that's that's how I like to, to approach this stuff, you know. I like the positivity. Good. Yeah. 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 There are ways. No fear. Nada te turbe, nada te espanta. That's Teresa of Avila. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing scare you. I usually I usually end my uh, union emails with the struggle continues. Yeah. <laughs> La lucha sigue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's an old Cesar Chavez line. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. See, exactly. Yeah. yeah man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Sam. We greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. What a great pleasure. Yeah. And so, so far, I, I want to get out there and I've got several authors now to go read because of you. Yeah. I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. You've totally inspired me. I'm such a scold, man. I'm just, oh. uh, I'm a mean old college professor, you know. <laughs> assigning, assigning books to read on podcasts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what's up. Well, you guys keep doing what you're doing. I, I really appreciate both of your voices and the combination of your voices. I know you don't share all aspects of a common worldview, and I, I really respect that um, because I think that's also uh a really important gesture amongst people who do have strong views, which is the ability to enter into meaningful, not only dialogue, but even relationship with, with other people. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's the whole point here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love it. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So this is the time of the show where Jose and I talk about uh, music, uh, movies, TV shows, any type of art or anything that entertains that we are into right now. Jose, what are you into right now? Okay, dude, Christine and I started watching the new Disney Plus show called Loki. Yes. So good. Uh, it stars Tom Hiddleston as the mischievous scamp known as Loki and Owen Wilson as the TVA bureaucrat Mobius M. Mobius. So the show picks up from that moment in Avengers Endgame where the Avengers are traveling back in time to snatch up all the Infinity Stones and they drop the Tesseract at Loki's feet. Whoa. And he picks it up. In the movie, you see him kind of back up into this dark swirling cloud and then mm -hmm. he's gone. Well, the show picks up at that moment. Huh. And he ends up in the Gobi Desert and the TVA, which is um, an acronym for the Time Variance Authority. They arrest him for crimes against the timeline because he 
created a branch timeline in doing that, basically. And Owen Wilson's character, Mobius, persuades Loki to hunt down a dangerous variant named Loki. Ah. It's Loki, but from a different dimension. Oh my gosh. So he's basically hunting himself down, but like an alternate version of himself. Fun. It's such a great show. There's like a, a 1970s aesthetic, like the orange and browns. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like a, the propaganda and cartoons look like the Flintstones or Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh my gosh. Um, it's really cool. And, and the consequences of this show will play out in the upcoming Spider-Man movie and the Doctor Strange movie, the, the Multiverse of Madness. And it is on Wednesday, so we have something to look forward to midweek, not always on Friday. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I somehow forgot yesterday. Today's Thursday, so cool. I can't wait to watch it. So good. You'll love it. Nice. You'll love it. What do you got for us? I got just a little music. My son, my sons are always now. I used to totally feed them music, but now they're feeding me. And my son from Cal is loving a band, and I'm starting to like them a lot too, called The Wallows. Hmm. W-A-L-L-O-W-S. Um, really love them. Oh, get this. The Beach Boys. I don't know if they had this song. Yeah, they. this is a reprise um, of a song they must have done, you know, 50-odd years ago, maybe. I don't know if that long ago, but called Big Sur. And, of hmm. course, we love Big Sur around here. So I uh, just listened to that song. People go listen to it. It's super mellow, and it fits Big Sur. I can't wait to listen to it while I'm capping at Big Sur. And what else? You know, Anderson Pack, who is from Oxnard, and he's a he's a hip hop artist kind of, but he totally I call him a lowrider music uh, uh, artist because his songs to me are just like early '80s soul, beautiful, beautiful. He teamed up with uh, Bruno Mars for a super cool song, and they're gonna come out with an album together, and I cannot wait. Um, called "Leave the Door Open." So that's what I got right now. P check out "Leave the Door Open." It's just a single song. Check out uh, "Oh Wallows." That's a pretty cool band if you like kind of. A uh, little guitar with a little synth, and it's kind of alt, uh, alternative indie stuff. Yeah. You always bring the music. Yeah, I'm, I'm into music, and I have been watching. I'm so into YouTube channels. I've got like 10 YouTube channels I listen to constantly. So I haven't been watching a whole lot of movies, but I do watch the big, big Disney stuff. So I can't wait for Loki. Watch Loki. And I'm going to check out your music. I always, I'll, I'll plug in some of those songs into the show. Yeah, yeah cool, cool. And I'll plug in some Sam Rocha. Oh, yes. Yeah, he, he's a great musician. So if you get a chance, check out uh, Sam Rocha. He's on YouTube, and he's got an album called Anamnesia. See, I'm, I've had too much to drink. I can't say it. And he uh, is, is, is it folk? Because I can't wait to watch his podcast. And, and I'm kind of into bluegrass folk right now. And there's a, there's a band that just start, uh, announced a show in Berkeley called Mandolin Orange. And another great um, folk band that I'm totally into lately called uh, milk carton kids and uh so um super interested in him just uh increasing my knowledge of full yeah he's awesome check him out all right that's all for this week thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast you could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Conversation on Tap. 
Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers. Great Woo. to be back in person. Yeah, si se puede. Adios, COVID. The struggle continues. Mixing your suffering with humanity and comedy. Thinking a little bit more about who we are as people. Each and every person has some sort of gift of prophecy. That man lost years. I mean, he lost years of his life, but mm. he also lost, at least within just the deportation proceedings, constantly. And I was right there losing with him. I never want to lose sight of that. You know? Like, I never want to lose sight of those moments where God grew small with me because I felt small. Folk Phenomenology, Season 1, every Tuesday, July 6th to November 16th. Please follow on your favorite app or platform.